0: turn in your Bibles to Colossians 4. Uh, To Colossians 4, we're going to be just doing a a sermon out of verses 2 through 4 of Colossians 4. Um, The passage we read together earlier, the passage from Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, it is probably the most famous passage in the Bible on the topic of spiritual warfare. And uh, it kind of carries with it some some cultural issues, because I remember this passage well. Growing up, it was used for all kinds of kind of silly gimmicks in the Christian consumer world. It was the basis for some really popular Christian fiction books. I'm sure many of you read those. They, they made angels and demons characters. In this book, and and they had these separate plot lines, and they they were unseen by the human characters in the book, but they they were responsible, essentially, for all the problems that the humans were dealing with in the books. And the result of those books ended up being a, a... giant chunk of Christian culture that had people all over the church blaming demons for all of the problems in their lives. Demons were responsible for their marital issues, for their bad friendships, for their cars breaking down, for medical problems, for like small, like lower back pain, that type of stuff. Uh, I also remember growing up that one of the most popular items at the Christian bookstore for kids was this little plastic armor of God set. You might remember that. I had friends as when I was a little boy whose parents would not let them buy toy weapons at all, but would buy them this. And those moms might have had good intentions, but as little boys, of course, we failed to grasp the spiritual metaphor, and we used the plastic sword of the Spirit to ruthlessly dispatch our sisters' stuffed animals and we take turns tucking our arms into our sleeves and pretending to chop each other's arms off. Um, it was the spiritual metaphor was lost on us. And th- those are the types of things a lot of times that come to our mind when we think about passage like Ephesians 6 and when we think about uh, we, we have those Christian fads in the 80s. It causes us to not take this passage many times as seriously as we ought to. We need to get that type of stuff out of our minds when we read this passage like this, and we think of term, in terms of spiritual warfare and conflict. And the reason I wanted to open our service or open with that passage is because it helps us to remember a spiritual reality that we so often forget about as we go about our day-to-day lives. It reminds us that whether we feel like it or not, we are in a spiritual battle, and it is raging on all around us every day, all the time, and it is so easy, so easy to get caught up in the things of this world and to judge what's really important based on standards of this world. But here, God's Word puts, it puts a mirror in front of us to remind us of the truth of what is actually going on all the time. And if you're like me, then as you were growing up, you you heard the consistent teaching of that passage in Ephesians 6 as something along the lines of all of these pieces of the armor of God are for defensive purposes, except for you have this one offensive weapon, which is the sword of the spirits. But we're actually told in that passage of the importance of praying We're to take the sword of the Spirit and we're to pray in the Spirit. In Paul's teaching on prayer at the end of Ephesians 6 and and elsewhere, Paul speaks of prayer like like a weapon that, that we're supposed to be using at all times during our battle. So in this sermon... We're going to look at Colossians four two through four. It's a passage that actually is uh, corresponds to that passage in Ephesians six. We're going to talk about how prayer functions as a weapon of warfare. And in your bulletins, you'll notice that, that we're going to try and organize this sermon around two main points. And that's number one: how are, how are we to handle this weapon? In other words, or how, how are we to pray? And secondly, how are we to aim the weapon, or what are we to be praying about? So let's read that passage in Colossians 4, 2 through 4, and and then pray again. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, To declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Father, again, I just want to ask that you would guide this sermon today, that you would appropriately encourage and convict where those things need to take place. Lord, I ask that uh, you would set our church apart from the rest of the world, the rest of culture that prioritizes things that aren't actually important and makes a big deal about things that don't actually really matter. Lord, that we'd be able to see through those things, that we'd be able to see through the news headlines. See through the the situations and circumstances that are bringing so much, that bring hurt and pain. See through it to the cosmic battle that is always going on. That we would be focused on eternal realities, not temporal. Be with us today, Lord speak through this passage help us to be attentive to what you would teach us through it in jesus name so the first point in your bulletin is is how to handle this weapon that we're kind of calling prayer or how to pray and when i say how to handle prayer how we are to pray i'm not talking about I'm not talking about, this passage isn't indicating the form of our prayers or the, or the pattern of our prayers. Actually, Travis is going to begin teaching us that tonight uh, in our Sunday night services. He's going to be walking us through the Lord's Prayer. where We can have a better understanding of that. But what we see in this verse isn't so much an outline for prayer when we're talking about how to pray, but, but the mindset that reflects how we should approach prayer. So just, just like a weapon, there's a, there's a proper way to handle it. A certain attitude you must have as you hold it. One that, one that reflects, an attitude that reflects the power and the purpose of that weapon. So, on the first point in your outline, I think we see, if you're looking at verse 2, we see cl- three clear kind of sub-points. The first one being of, of how to how to pray or, or how to handle the weapon of prayer. The first being that, that we are to continue steadfastly in prayer. We're to continue steadfastly in prayer. Some translations may they say to be devoted to prayer. The idea is, is similar. The idea is that we are going to persist at it and labor at it no matter how hard it gets. This little command. Brings with it the understanding that this is something that we need to prioritize. We need to prioritize, not just not just in terms of making like a one-time New Year's resolution type of type of statement, type of declaration that this is something that I am going to do. And it's not that. It says continue steadfastly in it. It's the idea of a of a daily prioritization of it, a, a moment by moment, realization of just how important this is. It's not just something that goes on our daily checklist eh, that you get done with in the morning or during a meal or something. You say, I prayed today. Done. And I I don't want to go too much farther in this passage without emphasizing that there is a corporate aspect to this command that we tend to to neglect, this command of prayer. And there's a corporate aspect pretty much to any passage that we read on prayer. Paul is addressing this passage and this whole book to the entire church at Colossae. Not a a group of, of individuals, but the church, Because what we typically do when we hear sermons on prayer is we typically take it and then we maybe get convicted about our personal prayer time and we go home and we think about how we personally need to pray more or how we personally need to pray differently. And of course, absolutely, we should be convicted in those areas. And I would hope that after a sermon like today's that you'd go home and, and change some habits and spend more time in personal prayer. But this is a command to the church. And it's so easy so many times because of the way we read our Bibles in the English language with no difference between the the second person singular and plural. This command is meant to affect the way we pray in our homes and the way we pray together. In fact, just turn over in your Bibles real quick to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. This little section I'm going to read you, it takes place during the brief little time of history between the time that Jesus has ascended into heaven and before before the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Look at chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away, We have, we have the disciples here in this passage early on that, and the faithful women and Jesus' brothers and they're gathered together in the upper room. They're gathered together in the upper room. and, and this is the, uh, this is kind of like the, the first one of the first little church meetings. And, and, and look there what it says about them praying, That word that, that's in there that's translated as devoting. As being devoted to prayer, that's, that's the same Greek word from the text from Colossians 4 2 that we just read. That's translated as continue steadfastly in. It's that that same idea of diligently persevering in something. And notice that they are doing this together with one accord. They're doing it together with, with one accord, it says, in in unity. And it's not just there. You actually can just flip the page and look at Acts 2.42 and see that, that description, that famous description of the early church. They devoted, that's that same word again, themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. So we see, we see in, in this verse... As well, that, that those, those things that they're devoted to, one of which is the apostles' teaching, the apostles' teaching, which is a hugely important thing for them to be devoted to. And, and I think that we as a church are, are devoted to the apostles' teaching, the, the Bible now. I think that that is pretty well understood by most of you, and we, we've kind of built a reputation around that, and that's good. That's what we want. If you've been here much time at all, you know that this church is devoted to the Word of God. And we are happy to be thought of that way. That's a joy for us. But being a church that is devoted to the Word of God and not to prayer also is not a good place for us to be. In fact, actually, when you think about it, that's not even possible since since it is the very word of god that tells us to be devoted to prayer and if we are okay then with not being a church that is really all that devoted to prayer then we actually are not really a church that is devoted to the word that commands us to pray this is the reason this is the reason that we are starting this service tonight it's so important for us as a church to come together in, in one accord and join in like-minded prayer to, to persevere in it. The idea of perseverance the idea of perseverance that's that's present here if you go back to the passage in Colossians, Colossians four two. The the idea of perseverance is present in it. You see that that's why it's translated the way it is is continuing steadfastly this implies that Paul expects us to run into things that will make it difficult to continue faithfully in prayer. He expects us to run into those things. That's not a surprise. He expects us to have reasons for not going to prayer meetings and, uh, and reasons throughout our day to keep us from prayer. He expects that. You don't just become a Christian as much as we all wish we could, well, you don't just become a Christian and then automatically you always want to pray and it's, some, and it's something that just comes to you. No, you, you have to work at it. It implies disciplining yourself to make sure that you are doing it. That, that's, in, that's the only way it ever happens consistent, consistently. And that's not even probably something I'm surprising you with. We, we all know this from experience. Right? If you don't schedule prayer, it rarely happens. It's the first thing that we generally push aside to make time for, to make time for literally almost anything else. It just naturally happens. You, you know, you don't plan to watch a certain amount of TV or to look at social media as much as you do or to surf the Internet instead of praying at the beginning of the day. You're not setting out to do that. That's just naturally what happens as you go throughout each day, even, even days where you might have it intended, fully intended to be praying more. At the end of the day, you get into bed having spent an accumulation of probably several hours in front of a screen somewhere and somehow never finding the time to pray. Then there you are in bed saying kind of a quick little prayer and as you begin to fall asleep you think I, you know what I really need to make sure I spend more time in prayer tomorrow. That wasn't good. And then tomorrow the same thing happens again. Another day that seemed really busy yet you somehow found the time to spend doing other, other things that you weren't planning on doing and you find that prayer gets shoved off and not done again. I don't don't believe the lie that you're just going to find time for it. You fall into that same lie day after day after day, as many of us do, thinking we're just going to find time for it. After a while, years go by, and, and you're actually praying even less because more stuff has been added to your schedule. Now We, we must schedule time. We must discipline ourselves to think differently about what we consider free time. And we need to take advantages of time to pray or we'll simply just keep pushing it to the side without trying. And as for, as for corporate prayer, we have to be even more on guard when it comes to our schedule because there are only so many times that we can actually do that. So, so if you can't make it to the times if you can't make it to the times that we're meeting together for prayer, you can't just reschedule it for a time that works better for you. Now, we all know that there are legitimate reasons that can keep us from meeting together and praying together, from, from legitimate, legitimate reasons that can keep us from, from coming to times when the church meets together for prayer. But, but if we're going to persevere to prioritizing, to prioritize praying together as a church, then it might mean reworking our schedules as best we can to try and make room for the times that that's available to us. Also, the idea of continuing in prayer, continuing means that we are to be persistent in it. We're to be persistent in prayer. That means to keep bringing our petitions to God over and over again he, he wants to hear from us like that. This is another concept that we that we struggle with because that's just so foreign to who we are and to how we think as people. It's so evident I mean especially if you're a parent, right? don't you just don't you just love it when you're trying to concentrate on get, getting something done some sort of project and maybe you're just about to finish. And your kid comes right up next to you and just starts asking the same question over and over and over and louder and louder and louder. In that moment, doesn't your heart just overflow with the love for this sweet child who's humbling themselves and showing their dependence on you? No. (laughs) No, the, the idea of being persistent in our petition just doesn't work at all with the way we think because it sounds annoying. You think along the lines of, I already asked God for this a couple of times, and he knows my heart, and I know he's heard me, so it seems silly and maybe bothersome to to keep asking. I don't want to bother him like this, but this is not how God thinks at all when it comes to our prayers. He actually tells us he wants us to do the exact thing to him that that he knows would annoy us. Look look over, flip over to Luke 18. Luke 18, look at verses 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected men. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So it, you see in that parable, and there's actually a similar parable to that in Luke eleven five 5 through 13, with a with a similar message that we don't have time to look at, but you can write that one down also, Luke 11, 5 through 13. Both of these parables, though, they show humans eventually giving in to the request of someone who is bothering them. And it actually uses in both of those parables, it uses that word bothering. And God is saying, I want you to do that to me. He actually says that at the beginning of that, that parable we just read in, in verse 1. That's the exact reason Jesus tells us this parable, is that he wants us to continue in prayer and not lose heart. He wants us to do this, and it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a discipline, and we're going to have to work at it because it doesn't come natural to us. But God says he promises to respond to the persistent cry of, Of his elect. That means it would be against, listen, it means it would be against the character of God to not respond to our persistent prayers. And not because he's sick of hearing our whining, but because he loves us as sons and loves to hear our prayers. Revelation 5 calls the prayers of the saints, it refers to them as bowls of incense. Like a sweet smelling aroma before him. So we're, we are to continue steadfastly in prayer. No matter how we feel, we are to be devoted to it, disciplined to make sure that it happens. And we need to be doing this together as a church. At least the, the next way that we see in this passage. The next way this passage tells us how to how to wield the weapon of prayer, how to use it, and that is, that is that we are to be watchful in it. We're to be watchful in it, watchful in prayer. It says that we are to be watchful. That's the idea there of being alert or staying awake, literally staying awake. It's not the idea of like keeping... You know, like your head on a swivel while you're praying, or or keeping one eye open so you know what's going on around you while you're praying, so you're not concentrating as much. That's not what he's talking about. The idea is more along the lines of 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 what we talked about from that passage in Ephesians six: being alert to the reality of the real situation that's going on around you. Keeping keeping an eternal and biblical mindset as you pray. Praying while alert to the things that we are to be alert to and watchful for. This will affect the type of things that you pray for. If you are alert and if you are watchful to the things that God calls us to. So for example, 1 Peter 5.8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Seeking someone to devour. We just kind of sung about that, our cold and ruthless enemy. His pleasure is, is for us to fail, is for our harm. Do you pray with the truth in mind that we have an unseen enemy? Satan and his demons who want nothing but to harm and destroy us? Every good thing that we try to do, that we try to accomplish as a church, every Bible study, every outreach event, every Sunday school class, every lesson that's being taught to our children, even, even right now as we're in here, all of those things we have a, we have a good and godly purpose for, and there exists very real demonic powers that are actively fighting against that purpose and they are actively seeking out ways to undermine everything that we do as a church every good thing that that you might do as a parent they're seeking to undermine those things are you are you praying like that's a reality are you alert to the devil and his schemes because here's, here's what you find in, in prayer for most of us. So that if, if you really believe that there's a threat, then you pray. If you really believe that, you pray. When our daughter Ava was three weeks old, she had a fever. Um, Diana's parents, Dave and Joyce, they were visiting us and they were in town and they were going to watch our other two kids while we went out on a date. With the baby and brought the baby. When you have, th- by the time you have three kids, even just going with one kid is a date still. Um, but but we were we were gonna go out on a date and we, we called the doctor and uh, and because uh, we were worried about the fever and and he told us to bring uh, Ava in right away. So we decided we would you know we'd stop by the doctor's office on our way to the, the restaurant. When we got there, the doctor. Uh, pretty quickly saw something that led him to be greatly concerned, and he sent us to the children's hospital in Louisville. About six or so doctors took her fairly quickly, and we watched as they began running all kinds of tests on her. And then they kicked Diana and I out and put us in a small little waiting room so they could do a spinal tap, and they don't let parents watch that. And they eventually, after a while, came in and told us that her white blood cell count was astronomical, and that she had meningitis. And they still needed to get some results back from some tests to determine whether or not it was viral or bacterial. And that was a big difference, because if it was viral, then she would be through it in a few days. But if it were bacterial, then there was a very strong chance, more than likely chance, that she wouldn't survive. And if she did happen to survive, she would most likely have brain damage for the rest of her life. they took us back in this isolated room to quarantine her, and they they let Diana carry her into the room, but they made her cover her face the whole time as we walked through the hall. It was pretty scary, and I remember... Very clearly, very clearly, going into a little waiting room and kneeling in front of a a hard plastic orange chair. I remember it so clearly and begging God, begging God for my daughter to have viral meningitis and begging him not to let her die. It's, It's just amazing though, isn't it? It's amazing how how good our prayer life gets when we recognize the presence of a very real threat. Also, when we recognize a real threat, we don't do that thing. We don't do that thing that we're tempted to do where we where we play off our, our not praying as, as like we're trusting in the sovereignty of God. Now, don't get me wrong. Resting in the sovereignty of God is absolutely essential in all of our prayers in fact that's that's what gives us confidence as we pray it's what it's what steadies us in our prayers but so often we use the truth of the sovereignty of god to passively excuse not praying it's what lets us kind of sinfully make peace with our lack of prayer that type of thinking is wrong because the bible teaches us specifically that the prayers are part of god's sovereign plan. So by not praying, we are actually failing to believe all that god, or all that the bible teaches about the sovereignty of god. Paul, pretty big expert on god's sovereignty, requests prayer. But we, we all know that, and that the bigger problem is not actually that you really believe that you don't need to pray in those situations. That's not what's going through our heads. It's that we aren't really alert to the spiritual reality in the same way that we're alert to a physical reality. We struggle believing the Bible with what it says about what's actually going on. When I could, when I could hear my daughter in the next room crying as they were preparing her to give her a spinal tap, even though it was extremely hard, there was a peace in me that that a God who loves us is in absolute control of this situation. But that truth did not stop me from asking that God, to keep my daughter still and to steady the doctor's hand. The reason we don't pray more is not because we trust God so much. It's because we aren't alert to the spiritual reality that we live in. Because here's the truth. I prayed like crazy when I recognize the presence of a battle for the life of my daughter. But during family devotions, and while she's at school and while she's at home with her mom and her siblings and, and even right now while she's back there in the in the crave room as I think David Alexander tries to clearly bring biblical truth to a bunch of kindergarten through third graders. There is a battle, a real battle going on for her heart and soul and mind and that's going on for that same child whose life was in danger. When, when that was the, the case, I, I didn't hesitate to pray at all. Are we alert to this? Do we really believe this is going on? Have we fallen prey to the belief that we are in a time of peace and not a time of war? Our culture... Our culture makes it so easy for us to be kind of lulled to sleep in this, to constantly think that that everything is fine right now. What we typically do is when, when we don't see any conflict, then we don't think about praying. That's why we pray when we do pray, right? Because we live like the natural state of things. We live like the natural state of things is a state of peace and quiet, Our lives are just kind of going on happily, going on normally. We're being entertained. We're comfortable. And then every once in a while, something comes and gets in the way of that. Be it cancer, sickness, the death of a loved one, some financial emergency. Something comes in there and it gets in the way of our peace and our comfort. And then we start praying about that. And we do that faithfully until everything goes back to our normal sense of a false peace. The curse of sin it still covers this earth. We are in a war. We are supposed to be his soldiers. And when we fall into the mindset, into, the, into this false mindset of what prayer is, we're doing exactly what our enemy wants us to do. The Bible tells us to be continually in a state of prayer, to pray without ceasing because it knows that we are in that, that battle. Contrary to what your, your physical eyes are seeing, we do not live in a time of peace. The curse of sin does still cover this earth, and it's, and it's celebrated by this world. God's word is maligned everywhere. False teachers who bring reproach upon the name of our great God are spewing lies from pulpits all over our country this morning and around the world. And there are people, people everywhere created in the image of God who are running full sprint to hell, and they need to hear the gospel. And yet, we stop praying when we look around and don't see sickness or pain in our family. We're to be alert. Be alert to the truth of the Bible and what it says about spiritual and eternal realities. Along a similar line a Another thing that the Bible constantly tells us to be watchful for is the return of Christ. In Matthew, this is what the, the Olivet Discourse is, is talking about. That's what, We don't have time to go there, but it's telling us, those parables there are telling us to, to watch for him. He, he is returning. You don't know when, But you want to be found among those who are watching and alert and waiting. This is really connected with what we were just talking about because keeping in mind the reality of the return of Christ forces you to pray more and to pray better. It sets in your mind the eternal truth of the fact that this world and everything that everyone here is living for will one day be gone and will not be remembered anymore. Everything that happens on this earth throughout history is just leading up to this one day when Jesus Christ will return to this earth. Being watchful for his return and alert to this truth focuses your prayers on that which really matters and keeps you from being distracted by so many things that the world makes into a huge deal but don't really matter much in the end. I don't want to I don't want to browbeat you guys on this but but how can you not draw this implication when you think about this? Tonight, millions of Americans will gather around their TVs and watch what is routinely the most watched program of the year, the outcome of which will dominate the headlines tomorrow and conversations at workplaces all over the country. And also tonight, a much smaller group of people will gather in here, sing praises to God, study His Word for a little while, and then come together and pray to God Almighty. In light of the reality of the certain return of Christ, only, only one of those things means anything at all. A billion years from now, no one is going to care about what happens in that stadium in Minnesota tonight. But What happens when the church comes together and praise has eternal ramifications? The third way... The third way from Colossians 4.2 that that we see that that, that our attitude, uh, the attitude we're supposed to have, the, the way that we're supposed to handle the weapon of prayer is to pray with thanksgiving, to pray with thanksgiving. When it says to pray with thanksgiving, it's not... Here, I'm talking about uh, necessarily that, that part of the ACTS method, the ACTS method, you know, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, as in, as in do each of those things in your prayer. It doesn't, mean, uh, it doesn't mean to be sure to always thank God in your prayers. That, that's a good thing and you should do it, but that's not exactly what it's implying here. It's talking about having an attitude of thankfulness in all that you pray. In all that you pray, it is true, and we should definitely specifically thank God for things. You must do that. And I think if you have a thankful heart as you pray for everything, it will cause you to specifically thank him for much. Now, the, the idea here is that you are truly appreciative, truly appreciative of the fact that, that God would hear your prayers. Prayers. And you aren't just doing this because you feel like you have to. Praying with thanksgiving implies that you're not coming to God with one area that you want Him to work on. That's not the only reason. You're coming to Him with the recognition of how much He has already done and how much He is doing right now. And one one thing, one thing that, that just is a constant demonstration of how, how sinful we all still really are, is, is how little time we spend being thankful to God for the good things that are always going on, the good things that God has already done for us, while spending a, a way disproportionate amount of time focused on a particular thing that we don't think is going okay right now. When we have an attitude of thankfulness as we bring our petitions to God, it makes it so much easier to leave the answer in his hands. Because no matter what he does with this request, we are assured of his character and his love because of the innumerable ways that we have already been blessed and that we can see him working already. Being, being thankful in our prayers also means recognizing, like we just mentioned, the absolute privilege we have in speaking to God. The absolute privilege we have. The unbelievable fact of what we just said, that He wants to hear our prayers. We were His enemies. His enemies. We deserve to have His wrath poured out on us. Praying with an attitude of thanksgiving means carrying the reality of what the gospel accomplishes in us into our prayers. Because of our sin, we are supposed to be cut off from God. We're not to have any relationship with him other than the object of his wrath. He is holy. We are sinful. There's There's a barrier that was to keep us away from him was represented uh, by the curtain in the temple. And when Christ absorbed the full wrath of God on the cross on our behalf, when He took when He took the full penalty of the sin due to each of us, and when we are then in turn imputed with the righteousness of Christ, the curtain separates. The curtain tears from top to bottom, and to get, God does it curtain is torn and we have full access to him. It's not merely that now we have a relationship with him where he no longer wants to punish us. That's good. Thank God that that's the case. But that's not all it is. No, now we have a relationship where we have become heirs, co-heirs with Christ. We're sons and daughters of the Most High. The same act that redeems us also guarantees for us that our prayers will reach the ear of our Father in heaven, not as some mere noise, but as a plea from one whom he loves, one in whom he sees the righteousness of Christ in. When we fail to pray, we waste this precious gift given to us on the cross. When we When we pray, we ought always to pray as those who understand just what it is that God has done for us in Christ on the cross, just what it is that allows us to be heard by him, the blessed privilege that we have to approach him. How could we ever come to God without being exceedingly thankful just for the ability to come to him at all? When we understand that prayer is, is the powerful weapon for our warfare that, that Ephesians 6 declares it to be, then, then we have to know how to use it or how to handle it like we just talked about, how, how we are to pray by continuing steadfastly in it while being alert to the spiritual realities around us and thankful, thankful for the, for the privilege of being allowed to approach Him. And I want to spend the rest of our time talking about the second point in your outline, which is where to aim that weapon of prayer, what it is we are to pray for. And there, there are many things, actually, that we can legitimately pray for. And in this little section, I, I am not saying that there is anything wrong with praying for God's help in all kinds of life's circumstances and situations. We, we should bring all the things on our hearts to God. Uh, that that is for sure, but but what I want to focus on here is what Paul is asking for prayer for, which happens to be the same thing he asked for prayer for in ephesians six eighteen through twenty I want to focus on it because I think it's one of the things that we frequently neglect in our prayers. look like at paul's request in verses three and four at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Paul's requests in verses 3 and 4, just, they just flow so naturally from what we've been talking about. When it comes to praying with a mindset that recognizes and and prioritizes spiritual realities over physical realities. Just remembering the fact that we are in a war. We are in a war whether we see that or not. And the stakes are much greater than the stakes involved in any war we read about in the history books if we are praying with the type of watchfulness that we have been called to, if we are alert to the things that are, that are most important, then we will want to see prayer done for the same things that Paul wants to see it done for here. And we see him asking here for an open door for the gospel, for open doors for the word And to declare the mystery of Christ. One thing that is amazing here, when you think about this, is that Paul is asking for these things from prison. Colossians is one of what we call the prison epistles, meaning he was in prison when he wrote it. Most of us, right, if we were in prison, we would be praying for open doors, right? Uh, We would be. Please, God, let, let one of the guards leave the door to the outside open that type of praying, but this is not Paul's primary concern. There's a possibility that there's something implied with that in his request for an open door to the gospel. But the obvious concern of Paul, the obvious concern of Paul, is that the word, that the mystery of Christ, the gospel, is declared to those who are still in real bondage, bondage to sin. He cares... Very little for his physical chains. He cares very much for those in the bondage of sin. And Paul here is demonstrating that he is able to see present circumstances and situations as temporal considerations. Whose only real significance has to do with how it relates getting the gospel to those who need it. That's what he's concerned for. Is that, is that what we pray for? Is that how we pray? Are we concerned about the souls of men and the glory of God? Are we more concerned about those things than we are about relieving temporal irritations? For so many of us, we just never use prayer like this. We never use prayer like, like we're supposed to. We're kind of like a soldier who has been dropped into a great battle. It's a war that is worth fighting for more than any other war. And it's a cause that's worth dying for. And we're given this this great weapon to help us fight this battle. But it's, instead of taking our weapon and, and getting into the battle with it, we we find some cover somewhere out of the way of the battle and use the handle of it to scratch an itch on our back that we couldn't reach before. That's how we treat prayer so much. This, what Paul is talking about, that's what should be important to us. This is what we should primarily be praying about. This is the the very same thing we see him asking for prayer for in that passage from Ephesians 6. Paul is recognizing that prayer is necessary. Prayer is necessary for these open doors for the gospel to happen. This is not in contradiction to Paul's belief in God's sovereignty. This is Paul understanding the sovereignty of God plainly. He knows that in order for one person, for one person to come to a saving understanding, a saving knowledge of the gospel, God has to do a miraculous work in their heart. He knows that the gospel is what is truly important to him in his prayer. He's asking God to do that thing that only he can do. Without God doing that, there there will be no conversions. Remember what he said in Ephesians 6.18. He said, pray that I may proclaim it boldly. And he adds clearly here. So so you see what's happening in his prayer requests. We have here for many Sunday nights now been studying apologetics and evangelism. We've been having about 70 or so people showing up, learning how to say the right words, to proclaim the gospel clearly. We're training, we're, we're wanting you guys to, to get that. We want to, as a church, be an evangelizing church. But that's not enough. That's not enough, just proclaiming it, just being a church that proclaims it. And it actually might point to why we haven't seen much fruit coming from that yet into our church. Paul is saying prayer needs to happen. Get what's going on here. Paul the apostle is asking for prayer to share the mystery of Christ boldly and clearly. Paul, who's possibly the greatest evangelist of all time, and he recognizes that he needs prayer to continue this work. If he needs it, so do we. We want to be a church that is out there evangelizing and clearly proclaiming the gospel That's why we have that class. But much more important than just obeying the command to evangelize is understanding the absolute importance of evangelism and recognizing the impossibility of the task apart from the work of Almighty God. A church that takes its time to make sure that we get the words of the gospel right is a church that shows that they believe the truth of God. And that's absolutely important. That's who we want to be. But a church that continually prays for the proclamation of the gospel as well shows that they believe in the power of God. I think that we are a church that has demonstrated our commitment to the truth of the word of God in Scripture. But I think it might remain to be seen yet whether we as a church Are that committed to a reliance on the power of God through prayer? So we're to pray for open doors, open hearts to hear the gospel. We're to pray to see this happening among, among all of us and in each of our lives as we go out. And if we really have the eternal mindset that we need in prayer, then we will pray like Paul does about it regardless of the cost. Regardless of the cost, this is what we want to see happening. Notice that the Paul in this account is asking for prayer to keep on doing the thing that got him thrown in prison in the first place. Once we start praying for the right things, physical hindrances can start popping up into our lives and start tempting us to stop doing that. And as we begin seeing the world around us in terms of of spiritual realities, we begin joining into the war, joining into the battle, things become harder. And our response has to be for the strength to keep going in the same direction. If God gives us as a church the strength to start fearlessly proclaiming the gospel like we should, chances are we're going to start losing friends in our workplaces, having a tougher time at work, tougher time at school. The temptation will again be to start praying against those physical things again. But we need to keep praying, continue steadfastly praying that we will continue on doing the same thing that will actually keep making it harder and harder to be comfortable in this life. So we're to pray as a soldier for open doors for the gospel for everyone in this church, and we're to pray that we will keep enduring, that we will keep at it no matter the cost, and we are to pray that we would make it clear that the gospel proclamation would be clear. And if if that's what we're praying, if we're praying for each other, if we're praying for each one of us in this church, that we'll be going out and presenting a clear gospel to this world. If, that, if that's what we're praying for, then by implication, that means that we're going to be praying for each other to continue growing in our understanding of the implications of the gospel and the God whose gospel it is. This means that we are going to be praying for each other to be growing in our walks with Christ. This means that we are praying that God would use our church services, the sermons, the Sunday school classes, the Bible studies, and everything else that we have to, to help our fellow members of our body to know and understand Christ better so that they can go about this task more boldly, and present a clear message. It means that when we see and hear of hindrances to the spiritual growth of our brothers and sisters, that we will join together and pray against anything that is impeding their growth. This means that in a culture that is flooded, flooded with false teachers, we're going to pray against their influence in the church and pray for defenders of the truth to bring to light their heretical teachings. We are going to pray for each other. We're going to pray for each other like we are brothers and sisters fighting the same battle. With the realization that we want each other to be properly trained for maximum effectiveness and focused on the real war, not distracted by temporal, worldly concerns. Or problems, or even pleasures. So, brothers and sisters, let's not forget this. So we are in a battle, a real battle, whether we see it or not. We have an enemy. We have an enemy whose greatest strategy is to get us to forget about that. And to concern ourselves with other things in order to keep us from properly using the only weapon we have that He truly fears our access to the ear of the sovereign God of the universe. Let's take advantage of that now. Lord, we thank You for the truth of Your word. A special revelation we have here that without it, ah, without it, it would be impossible impossible to know what is really going on out there. We thank you that you have given it to us, and I pray that we would not neglect the message that we've heard from it today, Lord, that we would believe. Everything that you say to us through your word about what prayer is, what's important to you, and how much you want to hear us pray. Lord, help us to be faithful, faithful in this, that we would be persistent in our prayers. That we would long, long for opportunities to come together and pray together in one accord. Lord, thank you. Thank you that this church is so devoted to your truth and your word. Father, I ask that we would be just as devoted to prayer. We would be known for both of those things. Jesus.